Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 38 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, October the 23rd. First, I'll be talking to In Moments Managing Director David Blakers, who will explore the state of Australia's business as it pivots towards digital and how that would improve customer relations. And then I'll be talking to IFM Investors Economist Alex Joyner about the state of the Australian economy in recession and looking at the bumpy road out of it. But now, let's talk to David Blakers. David, tell us about InMoment's XI Digital Transformation Solution. Yeah, sure. Thanks, Dan. So XI Digital uh, Transformation is a new offering we're taking to market in response to, I think, the changing uh, market conditions off the back of COVID in particular. There's been an acceleration of digital transformation, I think, across just about every industry as 
most organizations have sort of rushed to adjust their operating models to provide more flexibility for their uh, customers and citizens. So given there's this increased demand for digital services out in the market, there's new customer contact channels sort of popping up everywhere. We've realized that a lot of organizations needed greater access to customer feedback on those experiences that's what we're providing to them and allowing them to act on that feedback in real time so they can adjust the information they're pushing out to customers regardless of channel if it's website native mobile app live chat doesn't doesn't sort of matter well i mean basically what you're doing is you're helping develop companies into e-commerce firms aren't you yeah, e-commerce, much more than that. Really, it's about giving these these different brands an ability to interact with their customers and meet them where they, where they are. So a lot of organizations have realized that customers want flexibility in the way they interact with the brand. So they want to have the option of possibly talking to a live person, going into a branch, getting on the telephone, but they also want assisted service where they may come in via sort of some self-service channels initially but then may need some help from a human or possibly just do it completely themselves at any time of their choosing. Right okay well tell us about the features of this solution. Yeah effectively what it's allowing these organizations to do is to set up listening posts in all these different digital channels they've got running so they've got an ability to be basically receiving real-time feedback on how uh, their customers are finding that experience across each of the different channels. If things are going well feed it back into their sort of product teams to keep optimizing those digital experiences. If things aren't going well again feed it in and, and learn from that experience. If a customer's particularly unhappy, it's giving them the means of actually triggering effectively a closed loop process where they can reach out and recover that that customer and make it right to stop them from churning or possibly going on a social media and you know sharing sharing about the poor experience they've had. Does it provide anything like access to key metrics? Yeah, it's 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 taking a combination of sort of a lot of the web analytics metrics that are captured today and combining that with the voice of customer information. So it's not just about having scored survey questions. It's also interpreting the open-ended comments customers are leaving in those verbatim is using things like text analytics, natural language processing. So it's categorizing those, those free flow comments and assigning sentiments so that the business is able to basically trawl through thousands and thousands of comments quickly and pick up the key themes that are coming back from customers. Does it use anything like uh, social customer voice data or anything like that? Yeah, it's, it's a mix of both solicited feedback. So, you know, putting these listening posts in where you're popping survey questions at different different stages in the customer journey across the, the different digital channels with unsolicited feedback. So where we're pulling down customer feedback through review sites, through social media, and sort of pulling that into the same system. So you're able to see side by side how customers are feeling both through you know, solicited survey results, but also just free free form you know, reviews and, and social comments. Does it have integrations with software like Adobe and HubSpot? Yeah, so it's got native integrations into all the popular web analytics tools. Sort of we have native integrations in place into all the popular CRM systems as well. So yeah, you know, if something does go wrong and a, a customer needs to recover that individual consumer, we're able to route that straight through to the CRM system of choice and they can follow up there or they can actually use the XI platform itself to actually recover the customer. So we give that that flexibility to each client. So uh, what about stuff like uh, Slack and Salesforce? Do you give access to that? Yeah, they're, they're, they're sort of popular messaging uh, platforms or CRM uh, applications. We've got native integrations into things like Adobe, Salesforce, you know, all, all the popular 
sort of CRM and messaging protocols. Quite extraordinary. How long did it take you to work out the technology for this? Oh, look, it's it's been something that's been in development for a number of years. It's building on some core platform capabilities, but really in the last 12 months, we've accelerated it. So what we've done is brought a lot of the enterprise-grade platform capabilities to market in a, in a cut-down package that's really affordable for businesses trying to really get started and accelerate their own digital transformation. So, yeah, it's a net new capability building on a, a strong base, but in a, in a cut-down format that's you know, really accessible and affordable for a lot of brands. So basically, basically you're, you're actually pitching it very much at the SME market, aren't you? Um, more mid to, mid to enterprise, but yeah, it's, it's certainly affordable for any, any brand that's got any volume of customer contacts through digital channels. Yeah, it's very affordable. You're, you're operating out of where? Uh, Sydney in Australia. I mean, it's a global, in moments, a global organisation headquartered in the US. But yeah, our, our APAC head office is in Sydney. We've got obviously offices all throughout Australia, New Zealand, up in Singapore, China, etc. So quite so a big re- footprint in, in APAC. So you're, you're actually reaching out to businesses in APAC? as well yes absolutely yeah yeah and what's the feedback like been like from them yeah equally as excited by it um a lot of yeah it's industry by industry in terms of their digital adoption but yeah similar sort of i guess trends across industries in different geographies now i have to ask you which particular sectors are taking to this technology uh, I, think, I think the first ones that have taken to it really are, are financial services, a lot of the utilities, telcos, um, where they've just got high volume of customer contacts, you know, huge big customer databases. They've needed to sort of stand up these digital channels to, I think, deflect a lot of contact into their physical contact centres, particularly through COVID. So the, the industries that have larger customer footprints were probably the first to go. And then it's uh, yeah, all, the, all the adjacent industries. A lot of government agencies are really starting to get on board with it now as well as they're realising you know, citizens effectively want more flexibility in the way they interact with the agency. So basically, you're letting them collect data from all digital channel choices. Absolutely, absolutely. And uh, so how many do you have working for you at, at, in Sydney? Uh, there's a little bit over 80 now on the team, so it's, it's grown a lot in the last few years. So it's, yeah, really exciting. You have quite a lot of people applying to work there? Yeah, no, the, the team's been growing really quickly. Um, not just here, as I said, in you know, team's growing really quickly in New Zealand. Uh, a lot of sort of expansion up into Southeast Asia as well. So it's it's uh, it's an exciting time for the industry in general, and for Moment in particular. And I suppose COVID would accelerated the whole process. Oh, absolutely, we've we've seen, and I think you know, you, you talk to anyone from most industries, and I'll agree with this statement that a lot of digital transformation plans that were already underway have just been accelerated massively through COVID. So a lot of businesses have been able to tap on, you know, budgets they wouldn't have thought were possible to access basically through demand. So as, as businesses have tried to gear up to support customers all coming at them from different angles, they've needed to accelerate the digital transformation. What's exciting about this is it not only applies to firms that are already in the digital space, like financial services companies and telcos, but it could also apply to firms that are moving into digital, like manufacturers and retail. Absolutely. Yeah, we've, we probably work with some of the leading uh, retail organisations globally, uh, a lot of really large wholesale brands in Australia, brands like TTI that look after Roby, et cetera. Globally, we're working with brands like Nike. So, yeah, from, from big global brands like that right down to sort of more boutique retailers such as Jack's Tyres, they're all, all leveraging the capability. Right, okay. So where do you see this heading uh, post-COVID? Look, I think customer experience management, customer experience in particular improvement 
is something that's not going away. I think it's the only the only means of getting a sustainable competitive advantage in an increasingly contested market. So I think the the businesses, the brands that adopt this capability earlier are seeing really big uplift in results. So I just think it's going to continue to accelerate. You know, the organisations that try to differentiate on a great customer experience are going to have more advocates, happier customers. They're going to keep coming back and refer more and more business to their friends. This, the, the byproduct of doing this stuff well, listening to your customers and adapting and taking action on the insights also is a reduction in your actual cost to serve. So you're taking a lot of the friction out of the way a brand interacts with its customers. So you're reducing effort and you're helping, helping the customer to get it right the first time and giving them greater flexibility and choice through these digital channels, which ultimately lowers your cost to serve and increases your profitability. So there's a real financial benefit that comes from this in the short term, as well as the long-term benefits around greater loyalty, greater advocacy. And how do you see the technology developing? Do you see it developing further? Yeah, absolutely. I I think there will be an increasing proliferation of feedback captured through rich media. So I think there'll be a lot more uh, video uh, insights sort of fed into these programs, just a proliferation of new listing posters, new digital channels uh, keep on coming online. Uh, they'll keep added, being added to the programs. I think from an insights perspective, I think there'll be a big focus on text analytics in particular. So the, the way we're leveraging machine learning and uh, natural language processing to extrapolate the signals from the customer comments and then democratise those by pushing them out throughout the organisations, I think will will become really important as all these channels keep you know, growing and growing. Well, David, we'll be watching the way firms transform themselves digitally through InMoment, and it'll be fantastic. Thanks so much. And now let's talk to IFM Investors Economist, Alex Joyner. Alex, what's your view about the way the economy is heading? Last week, we had unemployment up to 6.9%. I noticed this morning Deloitte Access Economics had it at 8.6% next year. What's your view about it? Yeah, so the the labour market data were... Roughly as expected, and and the reason I say that is we had some quite good months for labour market data as restrictions opened up across Australia outside of Victoria, of course. So some of the low-hanging fruit, I guess, in the labour market is just people going back to their uh, old jobs. So the employment or rate of employment uh, lifted because of that and the number of hours worked in the economy uh, lifted because of that. Where we go from here is, is a bit more hard yards. Now, Victoria is slowing up, but Victoria is obviously weighing on the overall numbers. There was a bit of st- statistical anomaly or, or some volatility in the data in the September print just around Victoria because you know, Victoria is clearly weighing on the, on the Australian jobs market. But we had a situation where the unemployment rate fell in Victoria in September. And that's very counterintuitive when we know that's wrong. But that was because the participation rate fell uh, one percentage point in that month. So if you adjust for that uh, and say that the people dropped out of the labour market were actually unemployed, well, the, the Victorian unemployment rate's around about eight and a quarter percent. Uh, and that's the official level, not counting the people that are working no hours and people that have stepped out of their jobs and those sorts of things. So the numbers are, are going to get a little bit more challenging from here, I suspect. We had the budget come out and look for the unemployment rate to peak at about eight and a half percent. But there's an unusual amount of uncertainty around this because we have a situation where we don't really know what the participation rate is going to be. Is, you know, are people that have stepped out of the labour market going to all come, come rushing back? Uh, or is that going to take a little bit of time? And then we don't have population growth because there's obviously not people coming in. So we, we have uh, a different dynamic in the labour market. And 
ideally that would help us get the unemployment rate down sooner, but there is a lot of uncertainty around that. So, you know, I have no quarrel with uh, unemployment rate forecast of eight, eight and a half percent. Where it gets a little bit more challenging is just how quickly we can get that down. And I think that's really going to be how the economy is defined and how government policy and the RBA's policy are going to be defined as a success or otherwise, is just how quickly we can get the unemployment rate down. Because we know from previous experiences, and these are the, you know, the recessions of the 80s and 90s, unemployment tends to be a bit sticky. And we often can't get it down as quickly as we would want. So that would imply that, you know, the government's going to need to be there with its support for a little bit longer than its forecast might suggest. Well, that would mean it would take some years before it gets down to even 6%. Yes, that's right. It was interesting in the budget, the the government uh, has this forecast uh, of the unemployment rate getting to about 6%, uh, 5.5% by by 2023-24. And then it outlines a situation where it would then start proactively engaging in contractionary fiscal policy. And that's sort of what it said. You know, it said it's going to leave all the support in for the labour market while the unemployment rate's, you know, relatively high and then start to wind that back a bit more aggressively once we hit that 6% mark. And that, that's interesting in itself because I, we've seen from the pre-crisis period that 6.5% sorry, or 5.5% our unemployment rate doesn't get the wages growth that we want. So who is going to get us back to the, or down to 4% if the government's going to be engaging in contractionary fiscal policy? And we just heard from Phil Lowe and the RBA last week that interest rates are not going to rise for at least three years, in, in his words. Indeed, there'll probably be more accommodation. But then who is going to add more accommodation at that point to get that 6% down to 4 or 4.5% to get wages growth up. That would be my big question around all this. The unemployment rate would need to be flying down and the economy need to be flying to get that in just in pure momentum terms. And really that's not anyone's forecast for that sort of 22, 23 outlook. Uh, It's a little bit more sobering than that. So that would be my key question. And and the, the implications for that is that the government will have to keep that support in place for a longer period than it would like to. Well, that would suggest, I mean, they, they are actually reducing JobKeeper in March, so they mm-hmm. might actually have to look at extending that beyond March. Well, that's that's the key thing. Uh, a lot of people have termed this a, a fiscal cliff. I'm not sure it's a cliff, but certainly JobKeeper is going to be becoming you know, less less generous. And, and what, the, what the government is trying to do is wean people off labour market support if it possibly can in an appropriate way and then hope that tax cuts take up the mantle from there in terms of supporting people's incomes uh, and that sort of creates this you know what they're calling you know a bridge to to self-sustaining growth but a lot of people worry that job people will disappear so that will uh, negatively impact sort of the the people that have dis- been dislocated from the labor market and people will just save the tax cuts uh, and won't spend because you know no one really is critical of what the government has done in the budget with you know pretty generous tax cuts uh, that have been brought forward and then tax cuts that are still out there in 2024 that are that are even more generous and then the the measures to improve business investment you know sort of the the incentives for short-term investment but these are all contingent on businesses and people having the confidence to do something with it. Businesses having the confidence to invest and people having the confidence to spend. And I'm not sure that that will be there 
just yet because of just the uncertainty that there is in the economy going forward? Well, you know, given the state of the job market, there's a lot of uncertainty in the job market. A lot of people are on JobKeeper and that's expiring in March. So, you know, they'll be looking at, they'll be getting their tax cuts, but they'll be looking to um, do stuff like maybe save it for a rainy day, pay down their mortgage, stuff yeah, like so, that. So, so people, the, the ABS has done some, um, some work on this. They do, they do a survey of how households are going. And one of the surveys did talk about or ask households, you know, what are you doing with these transfer payments you're getting from the government? And people, for the most part, are being pretty responsible. It's, it's paying down debt, primarily their mortgage or their credit card. Uh, it's paying utilities. So, you know, this is more your non-discretionary spending or, or then saving it because the outlook is, is so uncertain. And that's why we've seen, you know, in the national accounts, the savings ratio go, go up quite a bit. There's also the added, I think, income that sort of wasn't really counted in the national accounts uh, in terms of the savings rate, which is the drawdown on superannuation. So it's interesting that, um, you know, the, the Reserve Bank's come out with a few charts in its financial stability review about uh, how households have taken on debt and then effectively run down assets uh, because of their drawdown on super to facilitate some of the spending that's going on. So, you know, we have a situation that's quite anomalous in Australia where we're in the midst of one of the deepest recessions that we've seen in modern history or the deepest recession we've seen in modern history. But retail conditions, as surveyed by NAB, are actually quite good. And we have retail spending in terms of its level that is higher than it was before the crisis. And you sort of think, well... How sustainable is that? JobKeeper will be wound back, so that will be one headwind to that. And then, contrary to my own expectations, the government didn't undertake a third tranche of superannuation early release. Uh, and that money amounts to, so far, around about $33 billion, uh, injected into the, into the Australian economy. And that, that's been a real, real tailwind for, for retail sales that won't be able to be drawn on again, at least in the near term. It remains an open question if it will be uh, in future, but at least for the near term, you know, that, that tailwind for retail won't be there. And, and that's why people are, are still having a pretty sobering retail outlook, uh, even though it seems on the face of it that retail, the retail sector is doing pretty well. I, I would still be pretty cautious going into Christmas, for example. Uh, I wouldn't say it's going to be a bumper Christmas or anything like that for retailers. A lot of that, our economic growth has been predicated on migration immigrants coming in and uh, that's driven things like house prices and it's driven a lot of the economic growth our borders are going to be shut till next year well into next year what impact is that going to have yeah well that that's a it's going to have a big impact but we're not really sure how things react so you know as we've discussed many times before you know the australian economy has been underpinned by about 1.4 1.5% year on year population growth as regular as you like, almost double, in some cases triple the rate that other advanced economies have. So, you know, it was always hard to have an economic downturn pre-crisis when you just had that level of growth coming in, you know, over your borders extremely regularly. So creating demand, not only in the retail space, but creating demand for property. Now, you know, the government predicated the, uh, the budget on a vaccine being deployed to most people by the end of 2021. So you couldn't see borders uh, opening up to wholesale migration before that time. Indeed, the, the budget had the unusual forecast of having negative migration. So 
uh, basically outflow of people. So, you know, very, very weak population growth. So, you know, that's going to weigh on the Australian economy, but also, you know, talking from, uh, from where I'm sitting, uh, the Victorian economy, because Victoria was unusually, uh, an unusually strong beneficiary of, of population growth. We were running at around uh, 2.5% at one stage, almost 2% leading into the crisis uh, population growth. So the Victorian economy was flying. Now, obviously, infrastructure was groaning under that population type of population growth, but the economy was doing well because of it. Uh, you know, pop, uh, property markets were doing well. So that is one lingering uncertainty, I guess, in the property market. You know, we're, we're seeing the first signs of recovery in the property market. Outside of Melbourne and Sydney, prices are starting to rise. But I would say that that's based more on extraordinarily low interest rates and the promise of perhaps slightly lower interest rates uh, in the near term and the Reserve Bank not putting them up anytime soon, feeding into some you know, enthusiasm. If you've got a job and you're happy to borrow, then you know, this is a, a good time to do it. There's not much stock on, on property markets, so, so the upward pressure of prices is there, but that fundamental driver in population growth isn't there. So you know, it might be an opportunistic time for people to get into property because they won't have uh, you know, people to compete with in that space. But for a fundamental driver of the property sector, and here I bring in sort of residential construction and things like that, you're going to need to see that resumption of, of population growth. And, you know, it's, it's a very open question. There, I know there was some forecast in, in the budget around this, but it's a very open question as to when that can come back and I think it will be a matter of years rather than a matter of, of sort of you know quarters. So Alex uh, all up but you're saying it, there are a whole lot of imponderables there and it's uh, going to be patchy. Absolutely uh, this is something that the, the Reserve Bank Governor said uh, in his speech recently uh, sort of the bumpy road out of this. I think that there's that, that's pretty clear that that's going to be the case you know in Victoria we've we've had a bit of a a minor setback with our opening up of restrictions. They're opening up a little bit more delayed than we would like. And there is possibility of further setbacks in Australia, but more likely further setbacks in the global economy, because that's where we're really started to see some of these second wave numbers get quite, quite eye-opening. You know, in Europe, uh, UK, US, you're really getting uh, a situation where things are getting out of, out of control. And there is debate around how heavy handed the restrictions should be to control these things. Should we you know, do what we did the first time or should, should we do something different? So huge amount of uncertainty around the global recovery, let alone the Australian one. You know, we, we hope that we can track a path out of this, but certainly there's going to be setbacks along the way. And I think, you know, the unemployment rate rising a little bit more will be one of those. The absence of wages growth, uh, the absence of population growth, these are all going to be headwinds coming out of this. And we're just not going to be, go back to normal you know when we when we initially went into this there was all this talk of v-shaped recoveries that's long since gone and we won't be talking about that again we're, we're going to be talking elongated u's and w's and all sorts of different shapes well alex thank you very much for your time and uh thanks very much for your insights pleasure as always Leo. so what's happening in the news well the u.s justice department accused google of maintaining an illegal monopoly over search and search advertising in a lawsuit filed tuesday the government's most significant legal challenge to a tech company's market power in a generation. In its suit, filed in a federal court in Washington, the agency accused Google, a unit of Alphabet, 
of illegally maintaining its monopoly over search through several exclusive business contracts and agreements that lock out competition. Such contracts include Google's payment of billions of dollars to Apple to place a Google search engine as a default for iPhones. By using contracts to maintain its monopoly, competition and innovation has suffered, the suit says. The suit reflects a pushback against the power of a nation's largest corporations, and especially technology giants like Google, Amazon, Facebook and Apple. And Netflix reported fewer paid subscribers in the third quarter as streaming competition increased and live sports returned to television. The company said it added 2.2 million paid subscribers globally during the quarter that ended September 30, compared with analyst estimates of 3.4 million, according to IBS data. Looking ahead, Netflix forecast it would bring in 6 million new subscribers around the globe, short of the 6.51 million that analysts expected. The streaming video pioneer is trying to win new customers and fend off competition as viewers embrace online entertainment. The pandemic sparked new interest in the service as people around the world were told to stay home, movie theatres went dark and sports leagues cancelled live games. In recent months, major sports resumed play and nascent streaming services including AT&T's HBO Max and Comcast Peacock offered audiences new options. And China has given the world a masterclass in recovery. Its economy continues its recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic, according to its latest official figures. The world's second biggest economy saw growth of 4.9% between July and September, compared to the same quarter last year. However, the figure is lower than the 5.2% expected by economists. China is now leading the charge for a global recovery based on its latest gross domestic product data. The near 5% growth is a far cry from the slump the Chinese economy suffered at the start of 2020, when the pandemic first emerged. For the first three months of this year, China's economy shrank by 6.8% when it saw nationwide shutdowns of factories and manufacturing plants. It was the first time China's economy contracted since it started recording quarterly figures back in 1992. The IMF expects China to be the only big economy not to contract this year. And Melbourne retailers and hospitality operators have had their hopes of an earlier reopening raised after another day of low COVID-19 cases saw Victorian Premier Dan Andrews float the prospect of a dark opening next Monday. The dark opening would enable staff to return to work to prepare shops and venues for customers after they were shut down in July. However, Mr Andrews warned office workers they should plan to work from home for the rest of the year. Retail and hospitality had been slated for reopening on the 1st of November, but Mr Andrews raised the prospect of an earlier lift of trading restrictions. The financial crimes regulator is investigating casino operator Crown for potential breaches of Australia's anti-money laundering and counter-terrorism financing laws. Crown said in a statement to the ASX that Austrac had identified potential non-compliance with the laws, including concerns in relation to ongoing customer due diligence and adopting, maintaining and complying with anti-money laundering counter-terrorism financing program. The matter has been referred to the agency's enforcement team, which has begun a formal investigation to Crown Melbourne. Crown said the investigation was focused on Crown Melbourne's management of customers identified as high-risk and politically exposed persons, which is likely to include customers brought to the casino by junket operators in China. And Crown Chair Helen Coonan has reluctantly conceded that taking no action over the cash-filled cooler bags coming into the company's Melbourne casino could have been seen to have facilitated money laundering. Facing renewed questioning from New South Wales Independent Liquor and Gaming Commission's inquiry to Crown on Tuesday, Ms Coonan pushed back against suggestion that the casino group took deliberate actions that facilitated money laundering by junket operators. It may have been ineptitude or lack of attention. I don't know that it was deliberately turning a blind eye, she said. 
Commissioner Patricia Bergen asked whether Ms Coonan agreed that, however it occurred, Crown was facilitating money laundering. It's very difficult to agree with facilitating. I think certainly there were all sorts of signs there, I would say, Commissioner Ms Coonan replied. And our work-from-home revolution has powered a spike in cybercrime, costing consumers more for everyday products and dragging billions of dollars out of the economy. The months between April and June saw a 65% increase in cybersecurity incidents, according to PwC's 2021 Global Digital Trust Insights survey of the thousands of business technology and security executives from large companies. The need to stop the spread of coronavirus forced millions of employees, particularly computer-bound office workers, to work from home in March and April. An astonishing number of employees moved quickly this year from working on computers linked to secure servers inside buildings protected by pass cards and gates to performing vital business roles from their kitchens and bathrooms. That shift was always going to be an opening for malicious and opportunistic cyber criminals. And Westpac, the Perth Mint and hundreds of Australians have been ensnared in a major global tax evasion investigation into an offshore bank linked to organised crime syndicates. The J5 task force, made up of the tax chiefs of Australia, the US, UK, Netherlands and Canada, are investigating Euro-Pacific Bank in Puerto Rico, fronted by celebrity business commentator Peter Schiff. An investigation by The Age, The Sydney Morning Herald, 60 Minutes and The New York Times found that simultaneous raids across the world in January could lead to about 100 Australians investigated and jailed over tax evasion. The customers of Euro-Pacific are advised to create accounts using front companies in other tax havens, creating a web of arrangements that are difficult to trace. Westpac facilitated the Puerto Rican bank's dealings with its Australian customers, while Perth Mint partnered with Euro-Pacific to allow wealthy customers to buy gold. And Australia faces a different economy over the coming years as a result of the drop in migration due to the pandemic-induced closure of international borders. It will also weigh on the pace of Australia's economic recovery from recession, leading economist Chris Richardson says. The latest Deloitte Access Economics quarterly business outlook predicts a population will be about 600,000 smaller over the next two years than earlier forecasts, even if Australia opens international borders gradually through 2021. But for Australia, migration is tied to a bunch of sectors like housing and commercial construction and higher education. The report forecasts the unemployment rate rising to 8.6% next year, when Australian Treasury is expecting a peak of 8% by the end of this year. Mrs Richardson also believes governments, as seen in the wake of the global financial crisis, will withdraw support sooner than they should due to the politics of debts and deficits. And more men than women have lost their jobs during the COVID-19 crisis and their pay has dropped further. Analysis of the latest statistics shows. The latest tax office payroll data analysis by Deloitte Access Economics and KPMG showed that while there was an initial washout of jobs for women in the pandemic-triggered downturn, those positions have recovered faster than jobs for men. An analysis of labour force employment and unemployment data shows a greater number of jobs have been lost and not regained for men than women since the crisis began in March. Jobs worked by men decreased by 5% in March, while jobs worked by women decreased by 4.2%, the Australian Bureau of Statistics figures shows. Payments to men dropped 5.6%, while payments to women decreased 0.4%. The number of unemployed men, including those actively looking for work, has risen 125,000 since March, while the number of unemployed women has risen 96,000 over the same time frame. Victoria's severe lockdowns have hampered the recovery of women's jobs, KPMG's analysis shows that while women experienced sharper job losses in April and May than men, 
women have returned to the workforce at a faster pace than men's. And billionaire Andrew Forrest's private investment company has flagged mm. a spending spree on lifestyle assets and iconic Australian brands after buying RM Williams for about $190 million. Retail analysts say Andrew Twiggy Forrest's RM Williams buy-up is a bid to capitalise on consumer patriotism that's emerged since the onset of the pandemic. They believe more iconic brands will soon fall under his wing. In a vote of confidence in tourism, entertainment and consumer spending in the economic recovery from COVID-19 pandemic, the mining billionaire wants to build the biggest lifestyle company in Australia. The Forrest family's private investment company, Tatarang, slipped under the guard of private equity giant TPG Capital to secure RM Williams, the leather boot, clothing and accessory maker most Australians associate with images of outback life. Tatarang Chief Investment Officer John Hartman said the company, which controls $17 billion of assets, was eyeing more acquisitions and would target other iconic Australian brands and experiences. Assets on its radar are thought to include everything from hotels and resorts, outback tours and rail journeys, theme parks and, and sporting events, as the Fortescue Metals Group founder and chairman bets big on Australia and its appeal to locals coming out of lockdown and the rest of the world. And Futurefeed, part owned by Andrew Forrest, Woolworths and Graincorp, has sold the first licence to grow and produce a seaweed additive that reduces greenhouse gas emissions from cattle. It is issued leading seaweed technology developer CH4 Global with the first licence to sell and distribute the product for methane reduction in farm animals. CH4 will trial ocean farming of the asparagopsis seaweed off the coast of South Australia New Zealand as it eyes a local slice of a global market for the feed additive predicted to grow to US $10 billion, that's $14 billion Aussie, by 2030. And Zoom meeting subscribers can now create hosts and charge money to attend virtual meetings on the platform through a new feature that lets the video conferencing software maker monetize its ever-growing role on the virtual event industry. A new feature called OnZoom has been designed to let users search for online events ranging from Pilates to group meditations and for the hosts to create and sell places in them. Event hosts can schedule and hold one-time events and event series and drop-ins from between 100 to 1,000 attendees, depending on the Zoom meeting licence, as well as to list and sell tickets directly through the platform. The platform will also let not-for-profit organisations accept donations and for hosts to promote on-Zoom events via email lists and social media. Attendees can search through a directory of public events and buy tickets online, as well as favourite, share and rate on-Zoom events. The launch of OnZoom means a NASDAQ-listed company can no longer just be described as a software-as-a-service company that runs a free service and a subscription premium service. Now, it will also operate as a two-sided, tech-enabled marketplace like Airbnb and Freelancer. An online retailer, Temple & Webster, made more profit in the September quarter than it did an entire year in a June 30 amid a boom in furniture and homeware spending. Temple & Webster earned $8.6 million before interest tax depreciation and amortisation in the three months ending September, compared with $8.5 million in fiscal 2020, Chief Executive Mark Coulter told shareholders at the annual meeting. Sales in the year to date, July to October 19, have risen 138% year-on-year after soaring 130% in the June quarter, with October sales more than double those last year. The extraordinary sales and earnings growth highlights the shift to online shopping and the cocooning trend triggered by the coronavirus pandemic. Consumers stuck at home are spending on new sofas and dining suites, carpets, kitchenware, lighting and Manchester, spending money they might otherwise have spent on overseas travel. Harvey Norman, Nick Scarley, JB Hi-Fi and Beacon Lighting have also reported strong sales growth in the June and September quarters, but growth at bricks and mortar stores has paled in comparison to that of pure play online retailers such as Temple and Webster. 
The company is taking advantage of the structural shift to e-commerce by adopting a high growth strategy, investing in areas such as technology and data, brand awareness and private label products to grow its share of the market. According to the NAB Online Sales Index, the online furniture and homewares category grew around 57% during the pandemic, April to July, while Temple and Webster's sales grew around 150%. And Westpac has announced a partnership with Afterpay on its new digital banking platform. In the first major partnership between the ascending buy now, pay later provider and a big four bank, it will see Afterpay offer banking services to its 3.2 million Australian customers using Westpac's banking license and newly developed technology platform. But that's not the point. This deal is about both sides piggybacking off each other's strengths and using technology and data to build deeper ties with customers. In a statement to the ASX on Tuesday, Afterpay said the collaboration agreement would enable the introduction of Afterpay savings account and cash flow tools for Australian customers from next financial year. The fintech, which has seen 700% growth in its stock price since March, said the new products would complement Afterpay's existing business model by offering additional customer-centric alternatives to traditional banking products. The new savings accounts will initially be able to perform basic banking activities such as a payment of bills, budgeting and cash withdrawals, with new features to be introduced over time. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to Lachlan Donald, CEO of Australian tech company BuildKite. COVID-19 has forced businesses to build new software overnight. BuildKite gives developers the tools they need to keep up with demand for software built with speed, scalability and security. And I'll be talking to AMP Chief Economist Shane Oliver about how well the market is now doing during the recession. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBRZ, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing you Talking Business next week. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.